0: Please turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, we're going to finish off chapter 3 and begin uh, our uh, look into chapter 4, we'll be in verses 26 to 29 of chapter 3 and into verse 4 or verse 7 of chapter 4. So while you're turning there, let me just uh, briefly catch us up to what we've been studying so far um, And if you don't have a Bible, please, there's some in the back there at the sound booth. Next to the sound booth, you can grab one there. If you don't own a Bible, then please take that with you. It's our gift um, for you this morning. Just to briefly go through uh, what we've been so far. Um, The book of Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul. It says, you see that right in the, the beginning. and It's written to the churches in, you guessed it, Galatia. And what he's doing in this in this uh, this letters that he's dealing with a real and present danger that's that's taking place amongst the churches there. A false gospel has been introduced, um, and actually it's it's a distortion, uh, it's a perversion of the true gospel, and it's and it's being uh, spread um, throughout the churches there by uh, these the people we know to be the Judaizers, and it's it's no small issue. Uh, as he points out in chapter one, he says that it's a damnable offense that these these teachers that were were spreading this this fake gospel, this false gospel, uh, were saying that you needed faith along with alongside obedience to the law of God in order to be justified or accounted righteous before God. And Paul makes clear in Galatians chapter two verse sixteen, as we already read, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The good news is that we have been justified by faith in Christ alone. Theologically, that word justification, or that term justification by faith, means that God declares or counts righteous a sinner. Based not on that sinner's own merit, but on the work of Jesus Christ that's received by faith in what Christ has accomplished. And so, why is righteousness important? It's the only way a person can be saved from the just wrath of God, which is the penalty for our rebellion against Him and against our lawlessness. And the Galatians had foolishly, and those are Paul's words, not mine, but they have foolishly adopted the notion that the Gentile believers, the Gentile converts, needed to supplement their faith with, uh, with this with following the law, with, with um, the right of circumcision specifically. One had to become Jewish, as it were, in order to be counted among the redeemed people of God, to be uh, considered Abraham's offspring. And what they were doing by this, these false teachers, that, that they were essentially declaring that, that Jesus' vicarious, atoning sacrifice on the cross was not sufficient enough to save us and to, and to bring us into right relationship with God. But Paul reminds them that it's the true sons of Abraham who are like Abraham, are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Abraham himself was justified by faith in God's covenantal promises which came prior to the, circum- the right of circumcision and not to mention before the law also was even established or given to Moses. And then Paul warns them that if they continue to rely on the law for their justification, they are inevitably going to receive upon themselves the curse of God. Not a superstitious curse like voodoo or witchcraft or anything like that of that variety, but the irreversible curse of God, his eternal damnation, eternal death, separation from God for eternity. But then he says, praise God, we are redeemed from the curse of the law because of what Christ has done. He is the perfect, righteous one, the God-man who came and he he took upon himself the curse in our stead so that by faith in what he has accomplished, we can receive the blessings of Abraham. And if you remember from last week, we looked at the difference between the promise of God that was given to Abraham and the law. The covenantal promise that was given to Abraham, as we see in Genesis chapter 15, is superior to the law in many respects. (laughs) which came, the law came, centuries after that promise. And that, that law doesn't void the promise that God had already given, but it was still given for a reason. God had extended his grace and his, through the promise to Abraham and to his offspring, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And what the law's role is, is that essentially it showed the necessity of God's grace in the promise that was given. It shows the urgency of that promise, and it's because of sin. The law reveals not only God's nature, His character, His his righteousness, and His holiness, but it also reveals our sin. And it also acts, as we looked at last week, as this guardian, this this kind of disciplinarian that, that imprisons all of us, under the weight of our lawlessness. But it was only a temporary guardian that was designed to point us and to drive us to our need for a Savior It's in order to drive us to Jesus. And that's what we're going to pick up on this morning as we look at our text. Again, we're in Galatians chapter 3, verses 20, starting in verse 26. Actually, i go to 25 so we can see the full, uh, the full verse or the full sentence that begins chapter 26. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or, and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, offspring, heirs according to the promise I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The Lord continues to bless us through Your Word this morning. So our outline this morning, as we're looking through these verses, is um, first we're going to see how Paul gives a description of our adoption in verses 25-29. through Then he's going to show us the means of our adoption at the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And then lastly, we'll close by looking at the experience of our adoption in verses 6 through 7. So let's first turn to the description of our adoption. These last few verses of chapter 3, Paul is is completing the thought and the argument that he has started earlier in this chapter. Uh, He wants to make it very abundantly clear that the lost temporary role as a guardian has ended with the coming of Jesus Christ. And notice that these, these four verses here could not be any more Christocentric, right? It's filled with phrases like, in Christ Jesus, and you are baptized into Christ. You, are put, you have put on Christ. You are all one in Christ. You are Christ's. So the law, its role, was meant to ready our hearts for Jesus. And now Jesus finally arrived. Praise God. And as Paul has stated several times, it's by faith in Jesus that we are justified. But now, Paul's going to do something interesting. He's going to show us another dimension of our de- justification. He's going to show us that it's more than just a legal transaction. Just, it's more than just this not guilty sentence standing before the judge, the eternal judge, that is God himself. It, cer- it certainly is that. I don't want to negate that. Praise God that we're no longer captive by the law and that Christ has set us free from the curse of the law, right? Amen? But it's a lot more than that. It's much, much more than that. That what Christ has accomplished for us, our justification, is also a new status. It's it's a new identity. By faith in the Son of God, we are now sons of God and heirs with Jesus Christ. And this is the first time in the letter that we see Paul is referring to the saints as being sons of God. And this new identity has forever changed and altered how we're going to relate not only to God now, but also with one another, especially with the redeemed people of God. God's not just the judge that just commuted our sentence. He's also now our father. And what Paul is hinting at here in these few verses here, he's gonna, he's gonna make it a little bit more explicit when you get to chapter four, verse five, when he says that Christ has redeemed those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because now Jesus, because of Jesus, we now have intimate relationship with God. And that's something that apparently the Galatians had forgotten. And Paul was using this letter not only to just encourage them of their new identity, but he's also warning them that if they abandon justification by faith, they're also, in a sense, renouncing their sonship and the inheritance that comes with it, the blessed promises of, of God in Jesus Christ. Let me make clear that what Paul is saying here, that those he's referring to as the children of God is not referring to everybody, everywhere, in a universal sense. And what I mean by that is that only those who are united with Christ can be called the children of God. We, we did a series a few years ago called, Did God Really Say That? And we dealt with that, um, that particular topic. And I recommend that to you. It's on our website. You can check that out. He's making clear, again, Paul's making clear that it's, it's only those who are united in Christ that can call themselves children of God. It's those who, are, who have faith in Christ, that can be called the children of God. And what Paul uses now is, is he's switching, and he's, what he wants to do is he, want, he wants to underscore that fact, that reality, by pointing to the ordinance of baptism in verse 27. And what he's saying by this is essentially that you've been baptized, you Galatians, you've been baptized, so you know what it means to be unified with Christ. And we, we perform baptisms here as well at King's Chapel in obedience to the command that. Christ gave us uh, before He ascended in Matthew 28 18 through twenty, that Jesus said, "All authority and power has been given to me to so go therefore make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit." So obviously, it's important to understand what baptism is in order to catch what what Paul's uh, what Paul's meaning here in this in this letter in this particular part of the passage. Baptism just to give you a little understanding of what that is, is the practice of, of immersing a believer in water and it, and it serves as both a, a picture and a proclamation of that believer's identification with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not a means of salvation, but it symbolizes the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that has already taken place in the believer's heart the moment that that person believed In Jesus Christ. Make sure you heard that again. I'm going to repeat that again so it's clear. That baptism is not a means of salvation. It's a symbol of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that has already occurred in the believer's heart. So Paul is not advocating a a kind of baptismal regeneration, that that baptism is necessary for salvation. He's already established that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. (laughs) But well, what he's saying is that the union that every believer has now with Christ as pictured in baptism is what makes you a child of God. And when you consider what baptism is, really, what, what better picture, what greater image do we have of what it means to be in union with Christ? Right, when we look at baptism, it's, it's essentially a compressed telling of the gospel Right? It's, it's a way in which to those who are onlookers are seeing the, the proclamation of Jesus' atoning work. It's also the testimony of the believer's redemption in Jesus Christ through His work. And it points to the guarantee of the future resurrection as well. That when death is finally defeated and we will be with Jesus forever, we will be with Him in our glorified state and glorified bodies. So what Paul is saying here is that those who have been justified by faith have been united with Christ. And we see that as pictured in, in baptism. And not only that, but he says in, in the end of that, that verse, in verse 27, that we're also to have now put on Christ. And, and the image he's, he's saying there is it's like putting on new clothing, a new garment. Our, our, our new identity is not just a... Uh, a renunciation of, of our previous identity, of our sin that had come before. It is that, but it's also, now that we are being clothed in Christ, we are, we are in a sense, clothed in His righteousness. We are, we are now embracing Jesus over and above everything else. And because of that, the new believer can now say, he can echo what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, which we've already seen before, that I have been crucified with Christ So it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. So when we say that we have put on Christ, it means that I'm so united with Christ now that everything about me has completely changed. Everything's changing, including how I relate to God, how I relate to others. And that's what he goes on to describe in verse 28 that all those who are justified by faith in Christ are now the deeply and dearly loved children of God. And we see that in God's family now, there's no favoritism. There's no advantage given to any particular group of people. That's something that the Galatians need to hear. It's something that I think we need to hear today, certainly in our time. And it's something that the apostle Peter needs to be reminded of as we when we look back to chapter 2 remember that we look back to chapter 2 Peter remember had been uh, associating with the gentile converts the believers he was eating uh, with them uh, he was eating the what was formerly unclean food with them but then once the circumcision party had come the Jewish converts who were, who were that were still relying on the works of the law when they finally arrived in, from Jerusalem, Peter distanced himself from, from the Gentiles he would converse that he was formerly eating with. Paul was quick then to confront him, to recalibrate his understanding of what the gospel is and its implications. He says that there, there's no reason that the Gentiles needed to adopt Jewish customs in order to be saved. Because the, the Jewish believers had no advantage over the Gentile believers. And vice versa, neither do the Gentile believers have any advantage over the Jew- Jewish believers. All are equally sons and daughters of God. All have come to this, into the same inheritance, the same rights and privileges that are promised to Abraham in Christ, and all are adopted the same way through faith in Jesus Christ. So here's a point that, that Paul's making. That Jesus has essentially broken down the walls that separate us from God, but also those that have been separating us from one another. The divisions that that formerly characterized our treatment of one another have now been erased in the gospel. They no longer have the same sway over us. They're irrelevant with respect to how we relate to one another any longer. The characteristics that that were once a source of our arrogance and pride have been put in their proper place. They've They've been placed at a very, very distant second to what it means to be one with Christ. Those who belong to Christ now have been incorporated into the family of God. It doesn't mean that we cease to, to be who we were before in terms of our, our ethnicity or our status in society or our gender. That doesn't, that doesn't change. Our unity does not mean that we're uniform. Unity is not uniformity. So we will continue to maintain our individual identities but those characteristics that that once attributed, that we once attributed so much importance to, and that once prevented us from loving one another, have now been taken taken a back seat to our new identities as children of God. And so now, because of that, we no longer celebrate our differences. But what we celebrate is our oneness in Christ. Our differences get me get, don't get me get me wrong they're not bad. But we don't worship them. We worship Jesus Christ now. Theologian John Stott put it this way. He says, quote, When we say that Christ has abolished these distinctions, we mean not that they do not exist, but that they don't matter. They are still there, but they no longer create any barriers to fellowship. We recognize each other as equals, brothers and sisters in Christ. By the grace of God, we would resist the temptation to despise one another or patronize one another, for we know ourselves to be all one person in Christ. End quote. And I think it's important though, since we're on this verse, it's 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 uh, it's one that's used, I think, a lot of times, uh, outside of its context, stripped out of its context. And I want to point out that it's that we need to understand what Paul's point is, what his original intent is when he used these words. He's describing the incredible, supernatural Christ-exalting union that's now characteristic of the new community of faith in Christ. It's a unity that exists because of, and it's only maintained by, the gospel. It's not by any other external forces that, it, that we find unity in this way. So having said that, let's agree that this kind of equality is completely foreign to our world. And unfortunately, it's oftentimes misunderstood even by Christians as well. We should keep in mind that the equality that we have as believers is supernatural. It's accomplished in Jesus Christ. And there's no way that we can export this characteristic unity or equality, which is unique to the, the, the family of God, the children of God, and then somehow apply it to society at large. No political party is going to bring about the community that Paul's describing here in these verses and elsewhere in Scripture. And we shouldn't expect them to either. As a people of God, it's not our responsibility to change the culture that we're living in necessarily. It's it's our responsibility and our privilege to to join in on the mission of God, which is to demonstrate and declare the gospel in word and in deed to all those that we encounter to show the love of Christ in that way. So then what Paul does after saying... Uh, saying that, he, he wraps up this, this chapter uh, in the very last verse there. He ends by saying the point that he's made in verses seven through nine, that he's making it clear that those who are justified in faith have, un- have a unique union with Christ and that the, the promised offspring of Abraham now are those who are attached to or unified with the offspring of Abraham, being, that being Christ himself. And therefore now, Those that are united in Christ are sons of God and recipients to the promised inheritance that was given to Abraham. And now, what we're going to see Paul do is he's going to shift now from describing our adoption as children of God, and he's now going to discuss the means by which we become adopted children of God. He's going to answer the question how are we adopted as children of God, inheritors of the blessing that were originally promised to Abraham and now that are fulfilled in Christ? He's going to show us exactly what that means. And he's, what he's going to do is he's going to use this illustration um, of a minor that's got to wait until he's mature enough to collect on the inheritance that was promised to him. It's a practice that was common in Rome at, at, at the time that, that Paul was writing this letter. And uh, it's not completely foreign. Um, some, some elements of it are. But the gist is this. A father has set for his son, a particular time in which the estate that he has, that he owns, is going to be relinquished to his son. He's going to be inherited by his son. And until that day, all the assets that belong to the father that are going to be given to the son are controlled by these trustees and managers until the son has reached the appropriate age and hopefully by then the level of maturity that he needs in order to take possession and to manage well the estate that's been given to him. So usually these guardians that were used, uh, these trustees, were the fathers, uh, most trustworthy slaves. They, their role was similar to the pedagogues that we heard about earlier, that Paul described in chapter 3 earlier in this chapter. Um, not only would they would they guard the assets themselves and, and take control of them um, in, in the interim, but they were also these, these harsh disciplinarians that would, in a sense, prepare the, the minor, this, this child, the, the inheritor, um, to receive all that was going to he was going to receive at a later date, so whether he realized it or not, this minor this 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 young inheritor um, the discipline that he was experiencing under the hand of of, of these uh, trustees and managers was actually for his own good and Although he was the inheritor of the of the estate, he didn't live in the luxury of the estate right he didn't enjoy the riches that would later be his instead he lived in a in, in a sense, like a slave, albeit just temporarily speaking. But Paul then immediately, which is helpful, which I like about Paul is that he explains what he's meaning by his illustration, by his analogy. He's saying that our natural state as human beings is one of slavery, that every person is in bondage to the elementary principles of the world. Those are his words that he's using. And, and Paul is very masterful and clever about, about the words he uses the phrases he uses there. I think what he's doing by, by referring to the elementary principles of the world is that he knows that he's speaking to uh, the context of a, of a Gentile uh, uh, converts and also uh, Jewish converts uh, in these churches in Galatia. So he's using this, this phrase, elementary principles of the world, in two different ways. And he's going to do it again in verses 8 through 10, which we'll see next week. But as we've already learned that the, the Jewish people were enslaved under the law, right? Uh, God had given them the law, which was mediated through Moses, and the law itself was good. It's a reflection of God's holiness, of His character. And it was also a diagnostic tool for our own personal sin. And although the law showed them what it means to live righteous lives, right? they, they, they found out very quickly that they were incapable of living according to God's standard. And so... They were under the imprisonment of the law. They were under not only the, the imprisonment of the law, but also the curse of the law because of their lawlessness, because of their sin. So that's how he's referring to the, that phrase in terms of the, the, the Jewish believers. Now, according to the Gentile believers, they were also imprisoned to the elementary principles of the world in the sense that they, uh, they were uh, worshipping uh, idols that couldn't save them, and, and, and it's referring to their pagan practices. But the point is that that Paul is making is that no one is excluded from slavery to sin. All are slaves to sin by nature of us being humans. And the same is true today as well. That, that, That continues that we were also once enslaved to the elementary principles of the world until the fullness of time had come, as Paul says. And just like in the analogy that Paul uses of a father setting this this time for his son's inheritance, so too we see that God the Father had set a date, a date from eternity past. It was an appointed time that he was going to send his son. And that means all of history, as we see, when we see the fullness of time there, all of history is under God's sovereign control. He had worked everything out precisely. He had planned it from the very beginning. He determined the perfect time And he also ordained the perfect means by which our redemption and adoption would be fulfilled. And then we see this beautiful list that Paul gives in verses 4-5 through as he's revealing that Jesus is uniquely qualified to procure our adoption. He says first that Jesus is the Son of God, that his mission, the mission of God from eternity past, can only be accomplished by God himself can't be accomplished by any finite or sinful person. And Jesus is the eternally existent Son of God. Paul talks about this uh, in many of his epistles, but uh, very clearly in Colossians chapter 1, he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we see that Jesus is first uniquely qualified to accomplish the redemption of his people and the adoption because he is the Son of God. And then we see that Jesus is also the Son of God who was born of a woman. And this is a reference to his incarnation, his, when he took on flesh. And when we really think about what that means, it's, it's an astounding reality, right? That God himself who... We just read Jesus himself, the agent of creation who had formed all things, is the, and He's being the cosmic glue that keeps everything together, then enters into the creation that he had made himself, that he had brought about. But he didn't just appear as a man. He actually humbled himself to the point where he, was, he took on full humanity in himself. So then, by doing that, Jesus is the God-man, right? He had full divinity, full humanity, it was born of the virgin named Mary. But I think this reference to a woman is, is much more rich than just referring to Mary. I think it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when the proto-evangelism was given by God himself. When he, after the fall, God promised that he will put enmity between the woman and you, meaning the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The promise here that God's giving is that the offspring of that first woman would be the one that was going to defeat Satan. That would be ultimately the one who was going to redeem humanity from the fall to restore the created order that had been marred by sin. So we see first that Jesus is the unique son of God, eternally existent one. He, he took on flesh by being born uh, from a woman. And then third, we see that Jesus is born into a particular context, a time in history. He's born under the law. He's born in the same atmosphere of slavery and oppression to, under the law that the people, uh, that his people, that the Jewish people had experienced for millennia. But unlike everyone else who deserves the curse because of their lawlessness, he was the only one who perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He was the one and only righteous one who abided completely according to the laws that God had given, and in doing so, pleased the Father. And then fourth, what we see here is that Paul's describing Jesus as the one who redeemed those who were imprisoned under the law. Those who had for centuries been imprisoned under the law were finally liberated. The promised offspring of Abraham has come, and he lifted the curse from us by taking the curse upon himself. On the cross he suffered the penalty of our sin and Jesus then cloaked us in his righteousness by taking our unrighteousness, our sin upon himself. It's what Luther called the great exchange. Because of his atoning work, everyone who places their faith in Jesus is is both justified by God, right standing with God, but also becomes the adopted into the family of God. Our identity as children of God now is cemented in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it's in the very next verse that we see something pretty astounding as well, that we see that the Holy Spirit is the one who then applies our adoption into our hearts. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to experience the reality of what it means to be adopted children of God. But notice first that we see here the, the beautiful picture here, right, of the triune God and His handiwork in salvation. We see that it is God the Father who from eternity had passed, had, had planned the redemption, and he, had, and he sends both the Son, and then we see also he's the one who sends also the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And then we see Jesus, the Son of God, the, the only begotten Son of God, procures our redemption and our adoption through his perfectly lived life, and by his atoning death and by his resurrection from the grave. And then we see the Holy Spirit, the one who then appropriates the works of, of, of Christ He appropriates our redemption and our adoption into our hearts. And so we see here, it's it's solely by God's grace and by his unmeasured love that we can call ourselves the children of God because that's what he calls us. As John tells us in in one of his epistles, 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are children of God. But it's this truth that we're reading about this morning and learning about, that's not meant just to be known intellectually. It's also meant to be ex- experienced as well. It's, been, it's, it's, it's important that we not only know that we're children of God, but that we experience being a child of God. It was meant to be felt. And that's what the Holy Spirit, His role is in, 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 in this wonderful work. Of redemption. He assures us that we are God's children, and that, that's what his role is. And, and I love this analogy that Dr. Tim Keller gives about what well, the difference is between the objective truth of our sonship and what it means to experience being sons of God, being children of God. He uses this beautiful analogy. He says this, quote: Picture a man walking along a road with his little boy, holding hands, father and son, son and father, The little boy knows that the man is his father and and that the father loves him. Suddenly, the father stops. He picks up the boy, lifts him in his arms, embraces him, and he kisses him. The boy is actually no more a son than when he's being embraced and kissed than he was before. But the father's action has not changed the status of the child, but, oh, the difference of enjoying the status, end quote. And setting the Spirit of God, God the Father, has given us the wonderful gift of enjoying our adoption. The moment that we're saved, the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts, breathes new life into our hearts, into a once dead heart, dead because of our sin, and He takes up permanent residence there. And He daily administers to our hearts, and minds as he's reminding us of our new identity, that we were once pitiful slaves, but now we are adopted and beloved children of God. And it's the Spirit's work to awaken us to the glories of God. And when that happens, when we finally see God Himself as the objective of our the obje- the, the I'm sorry, the object of our adoration and our devotion. Everything changes. We see him as the supreme treasure of our hearts and by the Spirit's power and by not only his power but also because we can be fully assured of our adoption as children of God that we behave now as children of God. Not as the young minor, the heir that was waiting for his inheritance but the one who is now a full-grown child of God. So we can now, because of Christ, cry out, Abba, Father, And the word Paul uses here for cry and crying out denotes intensity and passion. And that takes the tone of our prayers now when when we know that we are loved by our Heavenly Father. That's how we we, we now pray when we are moved by His beauty and His holiness. We see His steadfast love and we experience His grace. When we contemplate what was necessary for Him to take what was once a slave, and now make us into his children. And by doing that, that evokes in us passionate pleas for his continued grace and mercy and praises for his glory. So what was necessary? We think back about what it means to be transformed from slaves into children of God. What was necessary was the death of the only begotten Son of God. In the garden on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus secluded himself away from his sleeping disciples. And in sorrow, and deep despair, he cried out to God. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible from you, for you. Remove the cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It was the will of God to send, of God the Father, to send the Son, Jesus Christ. And as the eternally existent God, who was fully clothed in humanity as well, who was born of the Virgin Mary, promised offspring of the first woman Eve, who completely fulfilled every dot and tittle of the law, he was uniquely qualified to redeem us from sin and to fully pur- procure our adoption as children of God. And he was pleased to do so. Jesus was pleased to do it. Now the Holy Spirit takes up. Residence in our hearts. He's the one that helps us to cry out to God the Father. So, so now Jesus' cry is now our cry. His Father is now our Father. We are all now who believe in Christ, that have been justified by faith, are eternally secure in our right standing before God and our love of God because of Jesus Christ. So i close with a couple questions here. Can you honestly call yourself a child of God, that you can approach God the Father as your Father? If you don't know Jesus, then you don't know the Father. Jesus himself made that that very clear. It's only those who have repented of sin, have turned away from sin and embraced Christ, rely on Christ, that experience the intimate relationship with God, now and forever. And if you haven't done that, Lord, this morning that I, I pray that you would this morning, that you would surrender your life to Jesus Christ and you would find fellowship with the Father, find the sweetness of that fellowship even now. But, but maybe also you are a child of God, but you're struggling with assurance. You've repented of sins. You've placed your faith in Christ. You're a justified child of God, not by any merit of your own, but through the work of Christ, the person of the work of Christ. But maybe it's either guilt over sin or maybe it's a neglect of prayer, crying out to God as, as your father. Or reading of God's word where the Holy Spirit illuminates the truth and the reality of our adoption in the gospel. Or because the lies of Satan being whispered in your ear. If you're wrestling with insurance this morning, then, then I would encourage you, just as Paul is doing in this epistle to the Galatians, cry out to God and call him Abba, Father. Meditate again on the gospel, on the redeemer work of Christ and and continue to pray fervently to the Father. The Spirit will show up he will testify to your spirit that you are beloved children of God and if you are children of God then you are also heirs with Christ, inheritors of the the eternal blessings of knowing Christ and understanding the beauties of the glory of God. Father, we thank you for your word this morning we thank you that we can know beyond a shadow of our doubt of any doubt that we have been justified by your son that we are no longer slaves to sin but we are now children of God slaves to righteousness because of the cloak of righteousness of Jesus' righteousness now applied to our hearts and because of that our status has now changed dramatically so now we can know you as not only the judge that, that, uh, that has commuted our sentence because of Christ, but has also welcomed us as children to himself. And, O oh Lord, that we would experience what it means to be children of God. Holy Spirit, continue that work in our hearts. It's only by your Spirit that we could do that, Father. It's, it's only because of Christ, what he has procured for us, and it's only by your Spirit that we can experience it tru- uh, truly here and now and even more greatly when you come back. And it's only because of your planning, Father, and because you have initiated this mission to save sinners, that this is all possible. So we thank you, triune God of grace, for your work in our hearts. And I pray that you continue that work a um, sanctification in our hearts um, and that we would not only just receive this ourselves, but we would share the beauties of this reality with those that we encounter, that we would demonstrate and declare the gospel, and that we would see other brothers and sisters be saved from sins. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.